Hi, I'm Leah Potter. And I'm Meredith Roten, and we're two news editors at the GW Hatchet. This is the Hatchet's weekly podcast, Getting to the Bottom of It, covering the happenings around Foggy Bottom and GW's campus. I'm here with our senior news editor, Kayla Harris, and our student life editor, Sarah Roach, who are here to talk about food insecurity on campus. Thanks for coming on, guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Tell me about this new report that you both obtained. Some student members of the store, some student leaders from the store, gave us a new report um, from the Wisconsin Hope Lab that was actually finished and released in March, but was um, obtained this week. So we got our hands on this report on Thursday, um, about two days after these students had gotten it. And basically the report is the first documented evidence of the prevalence of food insecurity at GW. The survey was sent to 3,000 students in fall of 2017 and asked them some questions about how often they feel food insecure, what are some different, um, I think there were nine or ten questions that asked had they ever felt hungry um, because they they decided not to eat because they didn't think they would have enough food or they skipped a meal or that sort of thing. And then based on the answers to those questions, the researchers categorized students, there were 250 respondents, and categorized them into levels of food security. So if they had low or very low levels of food security, they were considered food insecure. And at GW, the report said that 39% of students um, were experiencing food insecurity, which is just about in line with national trends. It was slightly higher. The national average is 36%. And what was the response from the store regarding this report? Uh, Student leaders from the store were not very surprised by the numbers. It was sort of just putting into numbers what they already knew to be true, um, was that food insecurity was was so prevalent at GW, and they they really wanted these numbers all along. The store is is shifting its focus toward not only doing its day-to-day operations, but also becoming more of an advocacy group, um, and having these numbers is one of the ways that they're going to be able to advocate for some of the changes in the university's meal plan and and ensuring that students are able to um, pay for their meals um, throughout the entire semester. Some... um, members of the store are also part of a food insecurity task force, um, which is completely separate from the store, but the numbers are very valuable for that group um, because that that was one of the goals that they had the whole time is to have sort of like documented evidence in data um, to be able to to inform whatever recommendations that they would produce by the end of the year. And so a lot of uh, student leaders of the store said that they also wish that the university had these numbers all along and that, you know, the university could prove them wrong, that, that food insecurity isn't this prevalent, but they don't have that evidence yet. So, Did the report reveal that specific groups of students are experiencing food insecurity more than others? Definitely. It broke it down between white and non-white, and it found that non-white student groups um, experience food insecurity at a higher rate than white students. And so student leaders of the store said that that was something that they had been aware of before the report was released and part of the task force that they're also involved with. They want to start brainstorming culturally appropriate foods um, for different student groups and food options that might not already be ready, readily available on the meal plan. Well, thanks for coming on, guys, and telling us more about this report. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks. Always a pleasure. I'm here with student life reporter Nia Lardi. Nia, you took a deep dive into the experience of Black students on campus. Can you start off with how many students you talked to? Yes, I talked about like um, 125 students. A lot of them are freshmen. A lot of the freshmen said that like before they came here, they expected GW to be really diverse. Or like um, a couple people had like instances with GW, like they had come here for like programs and stuff. 
and they saw GW's diversity, also because they were like specific diversity programs. But that when they got here, they felt that it wasn't diverse, especially like the amount of black students that were on campus. They feel like there was a lack of that. And how did they feel like the lack of diversity like impacted their experience as a whole? Some black people came from different areas. Some came from like predominantly black communities. Some came from predominantly white communities. So the people that came from predominantly um, black communities said at first like they experienced some culture shock, and then like with like because like they're around so many white students that they haven't been before, but not being able to find the black community that they're usually around kind of affected them, especially socially. A lot of people said not that much academically, but especially socially. Whereas, like, a lot of the Black people that came from predominantly white communities said that, like, although it was a disappointment, they had been used to it before. So you said that uh, most students felt like the the lack of diversity, like, affected them socially. Like, how did they deal with that? One basketball player, she said that she ended up finding her community, at least so far here, within the sports community, not the Black community. Then there's also this thing called Posse, where a lot, so like they bring like 10 students every year, like it's like a cohort. So like a lot of the kids in Posse, they were able to like bond together and create a community within themselves. Um, Some people said that they like just stopped kind of searching so much, or a lot of like students that came from predominantly white high schools, Mm -hmm. they said that they stopped trying to, I guess, fit in so much with the black community, just because they also kind of felt awkward. Like when we had one student say that she felt more comfortable hanging out with white students than she did with black students. That's where she found her community. So people said they just found them within their dorms. You talked to a lot of freshmen, but you also talked to upperclassmen. What did the students who had been at GW longer have to say? So the upperclassmen, a lot of them said that there was a black community at GW, that you just had to like go out and find it, though. Some said, like Johnny Walther said that black student, a black upperclassmen do have an obligation to be mentors or to reach out to fresh black students that are freshmen coming in, especially since they've been here. But not all upperclassmen like felt that way. Did anyone else that you talked to have suggestions for how black students could find their own community? I had some black students say that we need a place where we can be unapologetically black. So a lot of people said that like the MSSC is there, but like the MSSC like isn't enough or it's like not like inclusive and just like being like a black space. Um some said that like black sororities and fraternities on campus giving them housing um like a sorority or fraternity house that would like help almost every black student said basically that gw needs to admit more black students and like Mm -hmm. just have like more resources for them when they get here like not just getting them here to be a number but like getting them here and like when they need to succeed when you asked the university how they were supporting black students what was their response so Carolyn Legger Brown, the vice provost for diversity, equity, and community engagement, said that she um, that the university recognizes that the black community isn't a monolith. That there's like black students that are from Africa, they're Latin American, they're Afro Caribbean, um, and they come from an array of social, like economic backgrounds. And that one of the ways the university recognizes that is like helping to support over twenty black orgs on GW's campus. Thanks for coming on, Nia. Thanks for having me. Sarah, this week you have a story about the number of bills and resolutions being brought to the Student Association Senate. Yeah, the number of bills and resolutions has seen a sharp decline 
in the past few years. So starting in 2015, there were about like 27 bills and resolutions being brought to the full Senate. And then that number went down to 12 the next year, went down to five last academic year. And this year, at this point in the semester, the Senate has brought four bills um, and resolutions to the Senate. So three of those were bills and one of those was a resolution. The full Senate is not convening at a later date this semester, so they're done with meetings. What kind of stands out to you about this year and it's even less than last year? A lot of senators are saying that the reason they're passing fewer pieces of bill, fewer pieces of legislation is because um, they're prioritizing quality over quantity of the bills. That was a remark that was nearly the same as, as what senators said last year when they were passing um, less legislation. Ojani Walthrust, the executive vice president of the Student Association, said the same thing, that they're prioritizing quality over quantity. And he also said that the um, the environment of the, of the Senate could have changed contrary to the previous year. He didn't specify how it could have changed. Walthrust was a senator last year in the Senate. So he... He said that that could have also factored into it, and he he also said that you know more than half of the Senate this year um, are not returning senators. They're not tenured. They don't know how to draft legislation just yet. So they're probably trying to see you know how the more experienced senators are able to um, get legislation onto the floor. But isn't it also true that there are more returning senators than there were last year? Yeah. So there are eleven returning senators this year, um, which is higher than it has been in previous years, and only a handful of those senators. So there are about three to four senators who are all the chairpersons of a Senate committee who are bringing these pieces of legislation to the floor. So all of the chairpersons, including A.J. Link, Anisha Hindocha, Finley Wetmore, um, Matt Ludovico, they all are a chair of a committee in the Senate. And they have been um, spearheading most of the legislation this year. Part of their focus has been to refine each part of the bylaws. So they've been going through like level 100 bylaws, level 200 bylaws, and making sure that they're as clear as possible. And so that has been like the main topic that senators have been debating in each uh, full Senate meeting. That hasn't really trickled down to any um, inexperienced senators. They haven't really gotten their hands on this legislation yet. Um, It's mostly just been contained among Senate leadership. And can you kind of break down the response from some of the the chairs about like why they really felt that they <clears throat> didn't want to bring more legislation mm-hmm. forward? Some of the chairpersons said that they're also working on behind the scenes work um, that haven't really needed um, or required any legislation to be brought to the floor. Um, so AJ Link, uh, he's the chairperson. He's the chairman of the Diversity and Inclusion Assembly um, as well as the um, Student Life Committee, um, and he said that. Senators are rolling out projects or working on projects that have already been started last year, like People for Periods, Hungry Harvest, um, organizing Hippo Day. Instead of drafting legislation, one senator who's in the Student Life Committee, his name is um, George Glass, he said that doing this behind-the-scenes work, in his opinion, is is more beneficial to the Senate than drafting legislation and and having senators debate about it. He had some ideas in the works of what he wanted to do, but he hadn't gotten anything started yet. But he said that he hadn't really written any legislation because he's also not very experienced and um, the process is kind of confusing when you haven't done it. Thanks for giving us an update on the essay, Sarah. Yeah, thanks for having me. Culture had a story this week about an alumna who is a prolific writer. Margot, tell me more about this person. Elizabeth Acevedo is a an alum who graduated in 2010 who pursued a spoken word career and released her first book this year, um, The Poet X, which recently won for a National Book Award 
for young people's literature. And we had time to sit down with Elizabeth. We got to talk to her about just the process of writing the book and her time at GW. Tell me, what is The Poet X about? Sure. So it is a verse novel, so it's written as poetry, but with a novel narrative, and it talks about this um, girl, Ziamara, who is from a conservative Dominican family who is kind of growing into this poetic voice and has to hide it from her family. And it deals a lot about religion, autonomy, coming of age. And I think that that all comes from her background in poetry that even started at, she, like, you know, was fostered at GW in the performing arts program when she majored in. She was able to experiment with the poetic form just through people like Leslie Jacobson. She took dance in her, like, to incorporate it in her poetry. And how did her experiences and observations at GW later influence her writing? Yeah, she didn't write so much about her experiences interacting with students at GW, aside from, like, a few poems, maybe. She mentions how GW um, and her major was, like, a silo where she she was able to just be creative without really having to impress anyone like her poetic circles in New York where they were like you know really in their craft she could just kind of be she didn't have to be great like every time for it to like matter she, everyone was very supportive of her she was a member of colonial cabinet she started a poetry club and she was vice president of the organization of Latino American students so she got really involved even though when she first got to GW, she wasn't sure if she wanted to transfer or not. How does she describe her writing process? Yeah, so she was a teacher um, in 2012 and started writing the Poet X when, or during her sessions like that. She had never worked on long fiction, long form fiction before, and so it was something that she never knew if she had the ability to do, you know? And so she worked on two different manuscripts and then came back to this one. Meanwhile, she finally sent her stuff over to two readers that she trusted and just like asking for feedback. And they were like, you know, this is already so great. You just have to send it to an agent. And so she kind of just went for it. And now she, you know, she got this crazy deal with a publisher with, with Harper's where she's signed on for multiple young adult fiction books. It's always a pleasure talking to you, Margot. Thanks. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us on Getting to the Bottom of It. Getting to the Bottom of It is hosted by news editors Meredith Roten and Mia Potter and features culture editor Margot Dines. This podcast is produced by managing editor Matt Colin and video editor Ariana Dunham. Music is produced by Olk Studio. Special thanks to Kayla Harris, Neo Lardy, and Sarah Roach for joining us. See you next week.